The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola America, a Tier 1 solar module producer and LED light manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record of being a partner for project developers looking to maximize their return on investments. Call 415-852-7421 to find your local representative or head on over to their website at renasola.us. For the week of July 23rd, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C. I'm a senior editor with Green Tech Media and your regular host. This week, Sun Edison is making a bid to be the world's first renewable energy super major. We'll talk about the company's plan to buy Vivint Solar, the second biggest residential PV installer in the U.S. for $2.2 billion. And uh, just a little aside here before I mention the first or the other two topics, and that is that we've heard from some of you that we cover solar a lot. And of course, today uh, has a solar story dominating the headline. And I just want to say we cover solar a lot because there are very few sectors where you're seeing so many major acquisitions, new IPO activity, breakneck project development, and of course, the political wars that we talk so much about on this show. So we're very receptive to our listeners, and we're also going to do our best to diversify. But we are following the biggest news stories out there, and that is often in solar these days. The other two topics are not about solar at all. In our second segment, we're going to be discussing a new global nuclear status report that shows the industry slipping behind renewables. And we'll end with a look at the scary number of climate records we continue to break around the world. And we'll close out the show by telling you something you do not know. Let me turn to Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine usually comes to us from Washington. She surprised us by being in Newark today. She's a partner at 38 North Solutions and joining us on her cell phone. How are you, Catherine? I'm doing great. I'm being very kindly hosted by PSE&G. I was doing... Um, I was doing a conference panel with MJ Shao from Green Tech Media on solar, so great. Our balance of systems expert um, in New York, not far away from Newark, Jager Shaw is with us. He's the president of Generate Capital. How are you? Doing great, doing great. This was a good week. In what way? It's always a good week for you. (laughs) Well, I mean, we got a couple of deals done at Generate, but also, you know, I think this this news on the Sun Edison stuff has got everyone talking strategically, which I love, right? Because, you know, sometimes we get too far into the minutia. Someone who understands solar strategies very well is Shale Khan. He's with us from Boston. He's the VP of GTM Research. Uh, we invited him on the last minute to talk about this surprise acquisition that kicked off Monday morning. How are you, Shale? Doing well. Happy to be here again, guys. So Sun Edison, one of the biggest renewable energy developers in the world now, it's like uh, roughly the third biggest or so, has been on this acquisition spree buying up companies that give it more diverse expertise and enable it to shovel projects into its yield co called Terraform. Sun Edison recently bought up First Wind for $2.4 billion. And earlier this month, Terraform bought up $2 billion in wind projects from Invenergy for the yield co. The second biggest residential solar installer in America, Vivint Solar, is the next target, as we learned earlier this week. So, Shale, Sun Edison and Vivint Solar, two big names in the solar industry. I think 
Sun Edison is very familiar with the listeners of this show because we talk a lot about them. They've had a lot of big news stories. And of course, Jigger's one of the co-founders, but I think less so about Vivint. Who is Vivint Solar? And why are they such an important acquisition target for this big, hungry developer? Sure. So Vivint Solar, I think, is a really interesting company. Uh, Vivint Solar is, as you mentioned at the beginning today, the second largest residential solar installer in the country, behind only Solar City, and in fact, a reasonably far ahead of third place, which, depending on how you define it, could be Sunrun or NRG Home Solar or Sungevity, a couple other companies. So they're number two. Uh, they had a really rapid ascendance. Uh, they basically didn't exist in 2012 and then shot up in the rankings over the past couple of years. And the basic differentiator for Vivint versus everybody else is that Vivint has focused almost entirely, initially completely, and now mostly on direct door-to-door sales. So they're actually going door-to-door selling solar to homeowners. They have very simple offerings. They don't offer you a lot of different options. It's basically just a PPA at a fixed price. Uh, and they do a really good job, an effective job of selling. That also puts them into a place where they're selling to different customers than you typically see because they're looking for dense areas where they where door-to-door sales make sense. So they're a little bit more urban than you've seen the general population of solar customers being. So Vivint has, you know, was a Blackstone-funded uh, company. They were sort of spun out of uh, Vivint, which is a broader home security and home automation company. They had an IPO that was sort of moderately successful um, and have been continuing to grow and their market share has been inching upward uh, but still behind Solar City until the acquisition earlier this week, which, you know, their market cap when they were acquired was about $1.1 billion. So the acquisition of it was about twice their current market cap. Yeah. Moderately so- successful is a little bit stretching it don't you think their, <laughs> I mean, they've had, they've their had IPO struggles, basically yeah. like their stock price has gone down every single day from their IPO not every day but yeah I mean they certainly haven't it hasn't been like a wildly successful public company that's certainly true I mean the, their pace of deployment has continued to grow but the, the market hasn't been all that excited about them the acquisition is going to give Sun Edison like 4,000 new employees and it's got this massive 523 megawatt portfolio that it can dump into the yield co and um you know, so this is a good good move for Terraform. They've got the the average contracts are at 19 years long, signed at an average price of 14 cents a kilowatt hour, and nearly all of them have this yearly escalator. Uh, Jigger on the culture front, is Vivint uh, a good fit for Sun Edison? You think? So I think broadly speaking, there's a lot of folks who've been accusing Sun Edison of basically acquiring existing assets and portfolios as opposed to growing stuff in-house. So from that perspective, Vivint is an interesting choice because Vivint is originating their own deals. And so you can manage the, the profit margin all the way up and down the chain. But on the cultural side, it's hard to see them being a good fit. I mean, you've got 4,000 people out there who are basically knocking on doors. And, you know, the, the rumors around Vivint, um, which I'm sure are largely true, um, is that, you know, they're, the people are pretty aggressive, um, you know, aggressive salespeople. You kind of have to be to be, you know, so much on commission. And um, I don't know that Sun Edison's people are, you know, accused of being um, that way. So now Sun Edison's going to have a customer service department, a customer service problem, and all those issues. So, you know, I don't know whether Sun Edison knows exactly what they bought off here, but um, it's certainly are being bold. Yeah. So Ahmad Shatila was very careful 
about talking about the culture fit. And of course, he's going to say that on the investor call, right? He said, oh, I'm a big fan of Greg Butterfield, the CEO. We think he's going to fit in great here. And we think that these two cultures are going to combine very nicely. Of course, he's going to say that. But um, Shale, do you see any culture conflicts here? I mean, aside from the the prudency of this acquisition tear, do you think that this the blending of these two cultures might be the biggest hurdle for Sun Edison and, and them scaling their residential solar platform? I do think that's probably the biggest hurdle. I think it, it's not necessarily one that can't be solved. But generally, I think I agree with Jigger. It's a different kind of business that Vivint is in versus what Sun Edison is used to. So there's a challenge in integration there. And I think I'm sure the cultures are, are drastically different generally. So that's that's a big piece of work. That said, to me, that's the only real red flag that I see in this deal. Other than that, it to me... From the Sun Edison perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Sun Edison has these ambitions that I'm sure we'll talk about that basically extend to everything. They want to do every type of renewable energy at every scale. And residential solar, particularly residential solar in the U.S., which is the fastest growing segment, it's been growing 50% a year for the past three years. It might be the most resilient to the ITC drop in a couple of years. Um, Sun Edison's basically been absent from it. They've sort of tried to build up a little organic residential business. It, it's been growing, but it's very small. You know, they're on pace to be something like a tenth the size of Solar City this year globally, and Solar City is just in the U.S. So they weren't doing it that quickly on their own, at least not in a way that, you know, would make a big difference relative to Terraform, which they really care about. So make a big acquisition and put that platform in-house, and Vivint was kind of an obvious fit there. There's, the, the one- there's another way to talk about aggressive sales tactics, Jigger, and that is customer acquisition. And they are known as a having a very strong customer acquisition platform. So uh, there's, a, there's the positive spin is that they now offer this really effective customer acquisition platform for Sun Edison that they just were not able to develop themselves so far. Oh, that, well, that part I agree with. I mean, I think I had a Twitter war with a few people um, about three months ago, about you know the fact that we really should have aggressive salespeople, and that you know a lot of people were arguing with me that this is really more a values sale, and I just think that's crap. You know, we really need the best salespeople in the market selling solar, which is great. But the one thing that is a little bit concerning to me, also at Vivint, is this: they're really 100% dependent on the third-party ownership model, which seems surprising to me. When you know, I think loans are so much better these days. I would have thought that they would have diversified a little bit more into loans, but they really haven't shown um, that they were, you know, really sort of long-term thinking enough to start doing that. And then I also, I've always been a little suspect with SolarCity's whole retained value concept um, under these energy contracts. And so, you know, Sun Edison's now got this big old retained value story um, on the third-party financing, which is like, you know, re-signing their customers to longer contracts after the one, you know, expires, et cetera. So I think there's some hocus-pocus that they have to agree to in this um, valuation. Well, I, I would say on both of those points, first on, on loans versus third-party ownership, I agree with you. Vivint has been basically the last one of the major residential solar players not to introduce a loan product. And if I'm speculating, it's because their business model is built so much around offering a single offering to customers, make it very simple, get them to sign on very quickly. And so the more complicated they make it, the harder that is for them. That said, Greg Butterfield had talked about introducing a loan at some point later this year in one of his earnings calls earlier this year. And I cannot imagine that Sun Edison does not now have Vivint 
introduce some kind of a solar loan very quickly because Sun Edison already had a residential solar loan. So by the end of this year, I would I would bet almost anything Vivint is offering loans. And then on the retained value piece, that's an interesting point. Um, but I guess I'm wondering whether the fact that they are acquiring Vivint, so now their Vivint's valuation is sort of baked into Sun Edison's valuation, which isn't all about retained value, and Vivint's assets are put in Terraform, which is all about cash available for distribution, not retained value, means that basically Sun Edison will never have to talk about retained value again. I could be wrong, but if that's the case, then they've sort of removed themselves from that whole truthfully very thorny question. Right, but I think if you look at you know, I mean, just to your point on baked in, if you look at their stock price, Sun Edison's stock price didn't move one iota. And in fact, it actually went down from $32 a share to roughly, you know, $26 a share now. So it, it's not clear to me that the market actually <laughs> loves this deal. Um, um, you'd think that Sun Edison's market cap would have gone up substantially, but it went down. Well, some analysts yeah. have issued the hold rating because they feel like they don't have enough information or because there have been so many acquisitions, they don't have enough information on how effectively Sun Edison is going to be able to soak in all these companies. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that, though. I mean, I do think, you know, that Sun Edison is doing too much stuff. I, I think that the solar industry is growing so fast, as well as wind, um, in their case, um, that I think if they really would have just boxed everyone out with Terraform Global and then figured out, you know, how to get utility scale into 10 more countries and then maybe even like dominated the CNI space, which they were dominant in before, but it seems like no one's bothering with CNI in the 100 to, you know, 700 kilowatt space these days, um, that they would have actually probably continued to meet their growth rates without going into residential. But look, I mean, I'm proud of the company. I'm proud of what they're trying to do. And I do think that it's an important thing for the industry to have a super major um, that is, you know, starting to rival the big oil and gas companies in terms of their CapEx budgets. I mean, San Edison's going to be at $6 billion a year of CapEx um, going into the ground, which is, you know, a really big number. Yeah, uh, guys, so from a policy standpoint, and full disclosure, I do work with Sun Edison on policy issues. It's great from my standpoint because the more assets that they have and the increased footprint that they have, the more congressional constituents we have. So it's great. Uh, you know, the, they're about 50-50 wind and solar now, and you know, they added the Invenergy wind assets, and that opened up Illinois, Nebraska, Texas, to, for me to go in and, and talk to these folks. I think... It increases and helps the entire industry, as Trigger says, um, and for me, from a policy standpoint, and to be able to speak holistically about renewables and not just be singularly focused on one technology is really great. And I think it'll help us build some more champions in Congress. I think one one thing that I've been trying to think about uh, is sort of how you can compare Sun Edison's big super major ambitions to, say, Solar Cities, right? Because Solar Cities not in some ways not trying to do the same breadth of things. They're not getting into wind, they're not getting into other countries yet, though they maybe will do so later this year or next year. Um, but what they are doing is they're trying to position themselves, I think, as kind of the ones to lead the distributed energy revolution. So they're very heavy getting into storage and load control and all this kind of stuff. And I think planning to be the ones that make the transition to distributed energy happen, right? Whereas as Sun Edison is all about just like assets. They need so many assets of all kinds. And it's an interesting sort of strategic dichotomy between those two because over the long term you could imagine if solar cities 
you know, further ahead of the game on distributed energy, Sun Edison stops being able to originate as much of it, so the Vivint acquisition doesn't look that good. Or if, on the other hand, you know, really the growth globally ends up being about utility scale, or it ends up being more outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., then Sun Edison strategy maybe makes more sense. But they're they're emerging as sort of two, and I should mention Sun Power and and First Solar at least as well in the conversation. But uh, at least Sun Edison Solar City are an interesting comparison, I think. I thought your last statement was most telling, which is that SunPower and First Solar are getting left in the dust. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't, just know about, don't think that they yeah. really have a place in the world now. I mean, you know, they're basically and also ran on most of this stuff. Their cost of capital is is very high, and both of those companies basically have shown that they really don't understand project finance. Well, they're winning. I mean, so SunPower and First Solar, first of all, are, are the ones who are winning most of the utility PPAs in the U.S. right now, not Sun Edison, right? So if you look at all the new contracts mm, getting signed, that's, I, that's SunPower I doubt and it. First Solar more than Sun Edison. It, it, no, it's absolutely. I doubt it. I think it's, it's, it's there's 400 installers that are winning those contracts, and then you know companies like S Power, which I'm on the board of, and Sun Edison and others are buying those assets at um, at NTP, you know, into Terraform or into S Power in our case, et cetera, right? I mean, I think that the original, most of the megawatts that SunPower and First Solar originated were back in sort of the 2007, 2010 timeframe. Um, you know, a lot of those big projects are ones are still completing. I have to say- That, that was true, that's not true anymore, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're right now, if you just look at contracts that have been signed this year, PPAs for utility scale solar in the US, far more SunPower and First Solar than Sun Edison. I think you're right that there was that initial wave and then they kind of went quiet. They're back now in a big way. So that's not to say that like Sun Edison isn't particularly innovative and ambitious. And, and But I think everybody, First Solar's got a big community solar play. Sun Power's active across all segments, you know, getting pretty serious about um, residential solar plus storage and how to deal with utilities in that regard. I don't know. They're all oh, doing I'm something not, interesting. Yeah, I mean, don't miss a me. I'm not bad-mouthing Sun Power and First Solar. But I'm you just, just saying did. that. You said they have no place in the world. Well, look, I mean, I think that like when you compare Solar City and Sun Edison, right? Like, do you really think that Sunrun and their IPO is going to even get close to where Solar City is? Solar City basically has a negative cost of capital. Every time they announce a $100 million deal, of which $20 million of that is equity from their own balance sheet, their market cap goes up by $100 million. Right, so they literally have a negative cost of capital. Sun Edison is very similar with the Terraform transaction, right? And so, so when you look at Sunrun and all these other guys, yeah, I think they get to a billion dollar valuation, they get to a two billion dollar valuation, but they're actually living with their feet firmly on the ground. I mean, their cost of capital are six, seven, eight percent interest rates. And when you're competing with someone who's basically back ending everything with retained value, like Solar City is, or someone who's dumping assets into Terraform, like Sun Edison is. It's just like they're on a different plane. I mean, it's just like their cost of capital is practically negative. So one of our commenters said Sun Edison is acting like the leader of a pie eating contest and the end result may not be pretty. What do you think about that, Shale? I like the metaphor. I mean, I think Jigger Jigger made the point before that he thinks Sun Edison is doing too much. And if there's a knock on Sun Edison right now, it's that. 
right? It's that they're trying to do everything at once. You could look at that as, you know, incredibly innovative and ambitious and you know, really trying to lead the world in renewable energy. Or you could look at that as, my God, they're biting off so much all at once. They got to be the best wind developer, the best solar developer, the best residential solar company. They got to be in every country. They got to, you know, build a residential energy services company in the UK. I mean, they're trying to do everything all at once. They're trying to do off-grid solar, our off-grid uh, oh my god, water pumping, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Right. I mean like Yeah. Yeah. I mean they're I mean what I would call them is undisciplined. So then Ahmad Shatila's vision of being the first renewable energy super major, is that realistic or are we talking about something that's not achievable for this company? I mean, can somebody define super major to me before we answer that question? Like what does yeah. that mean? Really? I can define it. I mean, I used to work at BP around the time that um, that BP merged with Amico. The, de- the definition of super major is making your own weather, right? I mean, basically, you go into countries like Egypt or Argentina or other places, and you actually develop everything. You give them the policy. You get a 200-megawatt contract. You go to OPEC, get cheap debt. You actually build the entire ecosystem. That The actual the embassies in those countries actually work for you because they want to see $300 million being invested in that country. They think that it's an, it's basically an extension of American power. And that's where we're headed, right? I mean, I, I do think that in the next three to five years, you're going to start to see um, the U.S. actually start to use their renewable energy financing prowess as a way of providing aid to countries. Yeah, and that strikes me that it would be good for everybody, not just for Sun Edison. Oh, absolutely. But I just think Sun Edison's the one that's investing in, you know, companies like, you know, Catherine or others who actually build the ecosystem, right? I mean, you can't build that ecosystem without support on the Hill, without support in the administration, without support at Goldman Sachs, without support at all these other power brokers. You know, Sun Edison's has is paying so many fees to all these other players when they're doing these deals that a lot of folks are looking out for them um, in these transactions because they want to see them succeed and they want to get more fees. So so you're saying that uh, being a super major is mostly, it's about political power more than it is about scale or scope or anything like that. Yeah, it's about, like, if you look at, like, the tier two players in the oil industry, like Anadarko or Chesapeake or some of these other guys, they don't make their own weather, right? They're trying really hard to sort of set up rules so that they can succeed in fracking, et cetera. But they're not even close at, at like just creating entire ecosystems, moving entire marketplaces. They do things in more traditional ways where they have to prove themselves every year and they have to develop a track record, et cetera. Whereas when BP goes into Russia, Business Week covers it, the Davos Economic Forum covers it, you know, CNBC covers it, et cetera. I think that's where we're headed with these super majors. That's interesting. I mean, I guess I could see where the way that Sun Edison is going right now in that they will be able to operate across the entire spectrum from, you know, small residential to big utility scale, potentially off-grid and then all technologies. I guess does provide them an advantage in doing that if they want to go to a country and say, "Look, we could we could introduce a suite of policies and no matter what part of renewable energy they support, we'll participate." Where somebody else might have to go in and say, "Well, we need you to make sure that solar is protected or DG is protected or something like that. I mean, with that said, I do think that, um, again, I'm going to mention Sun Power and First Solar because both of them have been doing a lot of work in that regard for a few years, right? Because both of them, 
started building up their international development capabilities a few years ago and have gone into a whole bunch of countries, Southeast Asia, South America, um, and, you know, first solar in India as well, and actually gotten some things done. So Sun Edison is not alone in that, but maybe the magnitude of their ambition is even higher. Well, it's pretty telling that we are now talking about the potential of a renewable energy super major. Uh, you were hearing from Shail Khan, who is the VP of GTM Research, and glad to have you on, sir. Thanks for joining us for this part of the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, this is the point in the show where we get to talk about our supporter, our sponsor, Renesola America. Renesola is a tier one solar manufacturer, but did you also know that it's a lighting manufacturer? Renesola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. You can enhance your project with Renesola LED lighting solutions for all applications. Not only will you save on costs through bundled offerings, you'll save on time too. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses featuring its products and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find their products, to talk to a rep, or to scope out their services, call 415-852-7421 or go to their website at renesola.us. A casual glance of the energy news will tell you that nuclear is in decline while renewables are advancing at an historic pace. But what does the data actually tell us? Well, it's a very similar story. The latest World Nuclear Industry Status Report is out, and it features some pretty stark numbers. Here's one. Eight countries that represent 45% of the world's population now get more electricity from non-hydro renewables than nuclear. The report's title may sound like it's coming from the nuclear industry. It is not. Uh, Rather, it's written by a group of academics and consultants who are historic opponents of nuclear. Still, the document is uh, well-researched, and the numbers, uh, they speak for themselves, regardless of how you feel about nuclear. Catherine, uh, lots of facts in here that stood out. Anything in particular for you? Yeah, so it was interesting to me what you said about these countries, that non-hydro renewables are far more than nuclear, and if you add efficiency renewables and storage, it just crushes it. Um, I reached out to a couple of folks. Um, one was the, the first thing I thought was, let me reach out to the nuclear industry and see what they say. So I called the Case Energy Coalition, which is the Clean and Safe Energy Coalition, it's the nuclear folks, uh, think tank. And, you know, they are really bullish on nukes. And they, they, the line that they use is that, um, low carbon standards in the U.S. and internationally require diverse electric supply, including those that provide electricity around the clock and are critical for 24-7 reliability. So it's interesting that they're taking that that stance that it's all about baseload. But, I mean, when you look at what, what where the markets are right now, that's not what people are saying. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's not surprising that they're, they're uh, using that line of messaging. And, of course, I mean, I think that they're right in theory, right? Like nuclear is reliable. I believe it's part of a low-carbon energy future. But the markets are so dismal for nuclear right now. I, I'm so curious as to what those conversations are at those organizations behind the scenes versus the rosy picture they're continuing to paint in public. Well, if you look at what's going on in Europe, and I reached out to Antonella Badalini, who is the head of Renewables Grid Initiative in Berlin. You know, she just said, like, people are backing out. They're not doing, they're, they're not investing. So EDF um, is having problems with the reactor development in France, in Normandy. They've had a five-year delay. Now there are all these 
They're finding all these issues about their cooling system. Well, that same technology has been proposed in England. That this, that, you know, UK has been taking this big stance on nukes, and and that plant has slipped from 2019 to 2023. And, and the government agreed to a price of electricity for 35 years for that plant. So, um, I mean, some folks have taken some big bets on it, but the plants aren't getting built. Well, I mean, I think you guys have heard my line in this area. I, I think that this entire framework is just completely and utterly stupid. I don't understand what, what why framework? this renewables versus nuclear. Piece. Oh, yeah. We're not against each other. We both want a low carbon future. And I'm so sick and tired of like the solutions project on this side saying it's got to be 100% renewable energy. Nuclear is not allowed. And then there was this amazing article um, called the um, environmentalist case against 100% renewable energy plans from the Atlantic City Lab by Julian Spector, who's an amazing writer where he says, like, you know, look, I mean, there's a place for both of them. And when you look at 100% renewable energy-only plans, they're way more expensive than implementing nuclear within that, right? So, so I mean, I think the nuclear industry has a good point around baseload. I'm not sure that they have a political leg to stand on. But I do think that this, this narrative that all sides, the renewables guys, the nuclear guys, and then, of course, these guys who wrote this report, um, are trying to put forward, which is nuclear versus renewables, is hugely damaging. And it should be all low-carbon fuels against coal. Uh, yeah, I think the issue, though, Jigger, is cost. So, you know, Bush won and Blair um, really pushed for Generation 3 reactor designs. None of those are in service. Like, nobody is really invested in this. And Saudi Arabia is now going to do some small modular. They're doing a three-year pilot to test. Um, but a lot of these companies, while they've invested in the technology, there are no orders because it's just so expensive. So I don't even know that I, I don't even know that you have to have a conversation about renewables if you're just talking about you know trying to get cheap, low carbon energy. One of the pieces of this argument, Jigger, that really bothers me is the subsidy argument. And uh, Michael Schneider, the the lead author of the report, who is uh, you know an academic nuclear opponent, said recently in an interview. Clearly, under free market conditions, one cannot build a nuclear power station anymore anywhere in the world. That means if a plant is built, it must be receiving high subsidies. Well, what about the vast majority of renewable energy plants that have been built around the world? I mean, clearly, we're now seeing some built with little to no subsidies, but it has been the government subsidies that have driven the, driven the growth. And Many well, of those every, early plants wouldn't have been built without them. So this, I mean, the nuclear opponents making this contradictory argument with a straight face is, it's disturbing to me, to be honest. Well, and the coal guys are the same. Every coal plant built in the United States since 2004 has raised rates an average of 5 to 10%. What is a rate increase of 5 to 10%? It's a subsidy, right? If it wasn't, if it didn't need subsidies, it wouldn't raise rates. So I just don't, you know, th this whole thing is crazy. But the thing that... That that I I agree with Catherine completely that you know that old school nuclear is 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 not very cost effective right now um, for on a new basis, uh, but but the the part that bothers me the most is that when the solutions project for instance who I love you know is recommending con concentrating solar power for New York State to make their numbers work, that's just dumb, right? I mean like nuclear is way more cost effective than concentrating solar power for New York State. Right. And so the part that bothers me the most is a lot of these 100 percent renewables plans that are being published, whether it's RE100 or all these other organizations, 
they by definition don't allow nuclear to be part of the 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 plan that they put in place. Yeah, I obviously very much agree with you there. Uh, that's what bothers me the most about many of those 100% renewable energy plans. They are decent benchmarks for sort of understanding how to model this stuff and figure out what technology sets you could use, but they have overambitious assumptions about technologies like CSP or enhanced geothermal systems. But um, just a quick aside on my subsidy piece, because I do want to bring this up, and I think this is also an important point on the issue. Renewables don't bring the same kind of insurance risks and, and, and waste problems and decommissioning costs, all of which are, of course, subsidized in some way. So that's an inherent difference and one that I think makes the pro-renewables argument compelling. But just simply saying nuclear gets subsidies so it can't compete is, is ludicrous. Yeah, no, and that's that's obviously the case that nuclear has decommissioning costs and and nuclear waste disposal costs. But I mean, you know, as our last guest, um, you know, on this nuclear topic talked about, I mean, she has a nuclear power reactor that eats nuclear waste for dinner. Um, so you know, there are ways of solving this problem if we were pro solutions on the nuclear side. But you know, we're, we've entered a phase where people have to be pro renewables and anti nuclear, and that seems to me counterproductive. Well, it seems that companies like, I mean, countries like Saudi Arabia who want to do a pilot to test small modular reactors, like that's, that's helpful because then you can test these new technologies, see if they work, scale them, and create a market that will drive down costs. But right now it just strikes me that in a lot of these instances there's a technology issue and there's a cost issue. And I'll just wrap up with a point that I've probably made a few times before. I'm a huge believer that we should put a, a lot of money into advancing small modular reactors and figuring out new nuclear designs. But there are a couple stats here. And, and when we talked to Leslie Duan of Transatomic way back, you, know, you made the point, Jigger, that when you're ready in 10 years' time, how dramatically different is the distributed energy market going to be? And are you really going to be able to compete? And I think as supportive as I am of the R&D picture, I still can't help but think about how challenging it's going to be for these companies when they emerge into a market 10 years from now that's going to be so radically different. And you consider what's happened since 1997, as this report points out, since the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change was signed, uh, we've added 694 terawatt hours of wind and 185 terawatt hours of solar PV and only 147 terawatt hours of nuclear. So even while renewables were very expensive, they've surpassed additional nuclear generation during that time, and one can only imagine what will happen over the next decade. Let's move from one dire report to another. The State of the Climate, a peer-reviewed report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration compiling observations from over 400 scientists around the world, came out this week. It is truly an eye-opening piece of work. Every record you can imagine was broken in 2014, from land and ocean temperature increases to Arctic ice melt and glacier melt to sea level rise. It is not good bedtime reading, I will tell you that. I had fewer nightmares after reading The Exorcist or The Shining before bed. Um, but I went through it last night before recording this, and uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this one, actually. And Jigger, you, you uh, often say that clean energy is winning, or at least in the electricity sector, from a dollar flow perspective. It's clear that renewables are dominating. But when you look at findings like these, like, d does it make you less confident in that winning feeling? Well, look, I mean, it's quite obvious to me that we're not going to stay below, you know, what Bill McKibben wants, which is 1.5 degrees. And then we're certainly not going to stay below what the G20 wants, which is two degrees. 
And then, you know, I think when you look at what happens at three degrees, four degrees, five degrees, six degrees of, of temperature rise, it's better to be at three degrees than six degrees. So, you know, I think it's important for all of us to work hard to figure out how to get these solutions in place. But, you know, I do think that one of the big challenges that we have in the industry is that the moral outrage people have been trying to scare people straight. And I think that the clean energy people like me um, are really focused on the positive entrepreneurship messages. Um, and then I think, you know, folks like the Sierra Club and others have started to say, well, look all the wonderful stuff happening in renewable energy just because they're so um, depressed about their own stuff, even though they're doing great work. But they're so depressed about like climate change and the temperature um, records that they don't really want to stick with the moral outrage case. They want to keep coming to this other case. And, and I, I don't know that that's great for us in the clean energy space. I don't really want the clean energy entrepreneurs to be mixed up with the climate change activists because I don't think it's a good story for our investors. Interestingly enough, when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago interviewing Gavin Schmidt, who is the head of the Goddard Institute at NASA, and he does all the climate modeling, I asked him whether he was an optimist or a pessimist. And he said, you know, at one point I was a pessimist and I, and I got sort of depressed, but now I'm seeing so many fundamental changes. And even though we still have this political mess in the U.S., there are structural changes to the way people are thinking about climate change, environmental issues, etc. And he was, you know, a lot more positive than I expected him to be. Now, this sort of feeds into an article I was reading this week from Esquire. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's called When the End of Civilization is Your Day Job. And they talk about what's called climate trauma. You know, the scientists that are dealing with these crazy dire scenarios um, and, and the personal attacks. So and many of them face suicidal thoughts, hopelessness, depression, and... It's just a really, really amazing look at what the scientists are dealing with who are modeling this stuff and seeing things that we're not seeing day to day. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think you can live your life that way. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, things are worse today than they were in 1970. I mean, I was watching that documentary on CNN, the 70s. I mean, Gerald Ford got on stage at the State of the Union address and said the State of the Union was not good. I mean, what's the last time a president basically said the State of the Union wasn't good? We had record high crime rates. People were unemployed. You had inflation that was double digit. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in the 70s compared to living now. And so, you know, I think that, yes, is, is the climate definitely going to go up above two degrees? Yes. We're all going to, like, have to adapt to that. But it's still a way better world that we live in now than we did in the 70s. Um, well, I'm terrified, but I can't let it show. <laughs> so when I when I think about policy in Congress, in, you know, you can't really deal with them on the basis of climate. And if you try to mix up weather and climate, it just everything gets mucky. But what they will react to, you see them react to, is the need for for issues that are that climate impacts, so resilience water issues, higher cost of electricity, all of these things may be impacted by climate, but are actual rallying points for policy on both sides of the aisle. So I see hopefulness in on the policy front from that angle. I have to be hopeful because if, I, if I'm not, then 
I lean toward nihilism and I just say, screw it. Like I, I really have to force myself to be positive about the, the solutions. So, uh, you know, if I, if I go too far down the rabbit hole, then I start seeing things in a much darker way. But I don't think you have to force yourself. I mean, I just think that like, you know, look, I was born in India. Um, you know, as of like three years ago, the situation was hopeless for 300 million people getting access to electricity. I mean, this year alone, Sun Edison's going to electrify a million people in India. I think all 300 million people in India are going to have access to basic electricity services by the end of 2020. That's extraordinary. You know, the World Bank, after failing to give people access to electricity or clean drinking water since 1960, you know, we now have distributed solutions that are going to give people both clean drinking water and access to, you know, cooking fuels that aren't going to kill them, um, you know, like between now and the next five years. I just think that there's so much good news happening out there. Is it happening at scale fast enough to arrest the two degree scenario? Probably not. But, you know, I still can't like get over how hopeful and happy it makes me feel that there are millions and almost a billion people around the world who are getting access to these basic services that I think are part of their dignity. Well, let's try to end on a positive note. I hope that people have have uh, positive stories for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Catherine, what's yours this week? Yeah, you know I'm going to be positive. I've lived in D.C. for 30 years, and I can't help but be positive. <laughs> Every year... It's like every year I go back to Congress and think they're going to do something, and they actually are doing something right now. Um, and this week was particularly busy. The Senate Finance Committee um, passed an extenders package that includes the wind production tax credit, investment tax credit, with with commenced construction language as it had been. And this is this is a two-year package, so it's retroactive to the beginning of 2015 to the end of 2016. Um, so that was great. It was all held together. Um, unfortunately, because of the way the rules were written, although fortunately from a public policy standpoint, because a whole bunch of other stuff could, weird stuff could have gotten into this package, um, solar was not allowed to be part of this bill because what, um, you know, the solar tax credit is not expired yet, doesn't expire until 2016. And they said there would be no policy changes in this bill, so no language changes like construction. But we're still working really hard to see if we can't get something done um, when it goes to the floor, which could be attached to the highway bill or some other must-pass legislation. So that's hopeful that it'll get done. I still think it's probably going to be the fall before you see the final the final extenders signed, but um, at least it, it made some made some progress in the Senate. And then also this week, Senate Energy... Wait, can I stop you? Hold on. Their... Can, can I stop yeah. you? Because yeah. I, I, what are, I mean, help us understand the prospects for that bill when it actually hits the floor. Yeah, so it'll be attached to something, a, a must-move piece of legislation like the highway bill, which has to, you know, the highway trust fund's about to run out, so they have to, um, that's a must-pass piece of legislation. So this could be put on there similar to, you know, XM reauthorization, because XM authorization has died, so XM is not funded right now. So, um, you know, they, there are a couple things that, you know, amendments, uh, in, in addition to a bunch of other really awful amendments that could get on, but... Um, you know, if the Senate can do it and pass it on to the House, and if the House can pass something similar, you, you never know. I mean, I think it could. House gets out next week, the end of next week. I don't know that they can get this done. I don't think they can. So I think it'll be pushed into the fall. But at least the Senate has a package that they can put onto a moving vehicle as it drives by. 
And, you had and a then uh, I just, yeah, quickly, uh, Senate Energy and House Energy and Commerce have both released their bills. Um, House Energy and Commerce was marking up in Energy and Power Subcommittee today their bill, and it has a lot of resilience pieces in it, which are interesting. Uh, a lot of technologies included, advanced energy, energy storage. So that's a distributed generation that's kind of interesting. Um, and then Senate Energy has a whole lot of stuff in it, too, a lot on storage and distributed generation. So uh, we're following those really closely. And I think we'll get an energy package at some point this year, but they're definitely moving forward on that. Jager, teach me something. Tell me something I don't know. Well, you know, as you guys know, one of my uh, big man crushes is on uh, Mike Grunwald. Oh. Uh, <laughs> of course you, Stephen, um, who's at Politico now. And his piece this week on overpasses a love story, it was sort of an investigation into Wisconsin and the transportation bills there that um, Scott Walker has pursued. So, you know, they basically have, you know, decided to spend billions upon billions upon billions of dollars for overpasses by, you know, saying to everybody that Milwaukee is going to have the same traffic as Chicago. And so you need to have this Southeast Wisconsin freeway mega projects. And his reporting is amazing. So they spent way more money on trying to build these new boondoggle overpasses instead of actually fixing existing roads um, or investing in public transit or doing any electric vehicle infrastructure. I mean, it's just amazing in a time when everyone's saying that our infrastructure sucks in the United States and that we don't have enough money to go around. We're building, you know, sort of lighthouse projects that we don't need. Well, I haven't read that story and I will check it out. But it does remind me of a really awesome podcast that I heard this week uh, on fugitive waves from the Kitchen Sisters. And they had this great two-part series narrated by uh, Willie Nelson on Route 66, the iconic highway that went from Chicago to L.A. and uh, was closed down over the years because of bypasses and new highway systems. So I just hijacked yours, but I'll check out that story. It's like the movie Cars. Everybody's got to go see Pixar's Cars movie. That's the whole premise of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, speaking of cars, hey, this is a great segue. We've seen this steady decline in driving in the U.S. since 2008, and there's new data out that shows driving in the U.S. has surged over the past year, and um, it hit a 12-month high in May. Vehicle travel on roads was up 2.7% between May of 2014 and May of 2015, and everyone's trying to figure out, like, did this long decline in driving miles was it because of the recession yes of course because it happened at around 2008 was it high oil prices yes that seemed to be a stimulating factor and then how much of it is this real shift in the way that we use cars people abandoning cars or using car sharing services and of course there's some of that but that is so difficult to tease out and it's clearly all of those things but low oil prices and low gas prices will enable people to drive more, and that's what we're seeing in the short term. And I will be very interested to see if this goes back down, because uh, we don't quite know yet if we've hit peak car in the United States. Many people were saying that we had hit it, and we had speculated about that on this show, but it looks like the data is going in the other direction. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I do think that, you know, there is some rebound effect um, just from, you know, the the miles per gallon going up, et cetera. But the other problem is, is there's nothing for people to move to. I mean, unless you live in dense urban areas like, you know, D.C. or New York or other places, it's not like public transit is really 
efficient and seamless yet with Uber and some of these other like innovations. And so until I think we create an alternative to personal car ownership, um, you know, we're stuck with these ebbs and flows. Well, time to close out the show. We are very grateful for the support of Renesola. So big thanks to them for sponsoring. You can find out more about the company's bundled offerings at renesola.us. The Energy Gang is a product of Green Tech Media. You can read our daily news at greentechmedia.com, subscribe to the newsletter, or also listen to back episodes of this show at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You can also do us a huge favor by leaving us a review and rating on iTunes or the app you use to listen. There are so many of them out there. And it, it just goes a long way to helping us find new listeners. So thanks for that in advance. Catherine, good to talk to you. Uh, are you going to stay the next week for vacation in, in New Jersey? No, no, I'm going to go run catch a train right now to get home. Uh, we go to the Adirondacks in a couple of weeks for August, and that's going to be awesome. And uh, Jigger, enjoy New York this week. Have a good weekend. Any good travel coming up? Uh, no, not this week, but we are going to Maine uh, You know, later in August, so we'll uh, be doing a podcast from Maine. Excellent. Well, we'll podcast from Maine and from the Adirondacks. And uh, until then... We are the Energy Gang. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We'll catch you next week.